It was great to see you all. We are resuming our series through the book of Revelation today. Um, this is the, the tenth message in the series that we began in September. The title this morning is Come Up Here. Well, as we, uh, as we get into this text today, just, uh, by way of review, you may recall that uh, in Revelation 1 through 3, which we dealt with in the fall, the aged apostle John, John the brother of James, at this time, by all accounts, the, the last living apostle of Jesus, uh, was in exile on an island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. This is about the year 95 AD. Um, he was there by the order of the emperor, Roman Emperor Domitian. John says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That is, uh, because he wouldn't shut up and he wouldn't give up teaching the word of God and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wrote in chapter 1, verse beginning of verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And having heard that, he he turned around and he saw a startling vision of the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ. I won't take time to read that right now, but but here's here's how John describes his response in verses 17 to 19. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he had he laid his right hand on me, saying, "Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one." I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And we observed back then that in verse 19 is really an outline, a fundamental basic outline for the entire book. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So the description, the things that you have seen, seems to correspond to chapter 1, John's vision of the risen glorified Jesus. The second description, those that are, represents generally the church age, uh, made tangible by those seven letters from Jesus to seven representative first century churches in the Roman province of Asia. Uh, in chapters 2 and 3. The church age is, is that time in history where we are right now. But then the third, namely those that are to take place after this, represents all that will follow right to the end of time, beginning with the event known as the rapture of the church that will occur at the close of the church age. Uh, we're beginning that major section of Revelation this morning at chapter 4 and verse 1. This past fall, we examined those first two sections in chapters 1 to 3. If you happen to miss those messages, I'd encourage you to go to uh, my LPC, my LifePoint Church, my com forward slash media. Uh, scroll down to the Revelation series and you can view uh, those first nine messages. And, and there you can uh, view just about any message that we have preached here at LifePoint since we started recording them. Alternately, you can log on to YouTube, find LifePoint Church of Olympia, and view, view those messages on that app. We took a break from Revelation for the holidays and then for the, our January vision series. Today, we're resuming our series in Revelation. Uh, I intend that we will now just stay in this important book right on through until we reach the end of the book um, or the end of time, one of the other. Uh, I think right now uh, the calendar suggests we will finish this series sometime in September unless Jesus comes before that. So we have a lot to talk about today. Let's get right into the text. Would you stand with me and let's read it together. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, 
and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You may be seated. This is God's word. I happen to be one of many who who believe that a significant event occurs unannounced between chapters 3 and 4 that is known as the rapture of the church. Um, This represents the point at which the church is removed from the world, taken into heaven, and a new era of human history begins here on the earth. Just before he was arrested and crucified, you may recall that the Lord Jesus gave this promise to his disciples. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I wanted to start there. Now go with me to Paul's description of how that event will transpire in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica, chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. And he writes, Therefore the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I want you to notice with me, first of all, in verse 16, the sounds of the audible phenomena that will accompany this event. There is the Lord's cry of command. There is the voice of an archangel. And there is the sound of the trumpet of God. Would you just make note of those things, either mentally or write them in your notes? Audible phenomena, cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet sound, trumpet call of God. We're not told what the cry of command is. We're not given the verbiage. Could it be, though, that it's the same command that John heard as we read it here in Revelation 4 just a moment ago? Come up here. Come up here. And notice what happens next. All who have believed in Christ but have died will rise first. What's that going to look like exactly? I don't know. Uh, It's going to happen fast. I'll leave it to your imagination. Then those believers in Christ who are living at the time that Jesus comes, then will be caught up with them, with those who have died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The word caught up is the Greek word harpazo. When the New Testament was translated into Latin, 
in what is called the Vulgate translation, the word that was that replaced the word harpazo is the word rapturo. It's the word from which we get our word raptor, a bird of prey. But it means the same thing. It means to be caught up into the air. Incidentally, it's the same word that, that is used to describe Jesus' ascension into heaven. That Jesus was raptured into heaven, that he was caught up into heaven. And then Paul says that from that moment of the rapture, that that moment of being caught up with those who have died in Christ, the saints of the past, uh, and, and meeting the Lord in the air, we will always be with the Lord, never again, or all of time, all of eternity, to be separated from him. And then he says we're to encourage one another with those words, with that promise, with that hope. Those words of encouragement are essential to our endurance, aren't they, in the Christian life? There's so much to discourage us, to dissuade us, to depress us in our walk with God, to distract us. And we need to encourage one another regularly that that the Lord is coming, that his promise is sure. We can count on him. To the church in Corinth, chapter 15 uh, verses 15, or 51 to 53, Paul described it this way. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Behold means listen up. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Remember, that's, that's the scripture verse for the church nursery, right? We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In this case, the word sleep means die. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. There it is. There's the the dead in Christ and those who are still living. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that this transformation, this change from the perishable to the imperishable, from the corrupt to the incorruptible, happens in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. How fast is the twinkling of an eye? Pretty fast, I think. A question with which we all have to grapple is, when, in what some in what some call the prophetic calendar, not a biblical term, somebody coined it sometime back years ago, many years ago, um, but it conveys that there is a sequence that's that's described in the scripture of what will take place. When, in what some call that prophetic calendar, will this event of the rapture of the church take place? And again. Many believe, and I am among them, that as we begin reading chapter 4 of Revelation, the rapture has already taken place so that the church is no longer on earth in Revelation 4 verse 1. And there is admittedly, we have to say this humbly, honestly, there is no single verse that announces the rapture or proves that this is true But there are several compelling reasons to believe that this is the case. Very persuasive. Because we believe in the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, we know that this event, which has been promised, will occur. The only question is, when? So here are four clues to which believers throughout the generations have looked. Clue number one. Before chapters 3 and 4, or between chapters 3 and 4 rather, the church disappears from the text of Revelation and and the events that it describes until chapter 19, when, when the church appears as the bride of Christ. That word church doesn't appear again 
until chapter 22. So Amir Tsarfati asserts that the word church occurs 19 times in chapters 1 to 3, then not again until chapter 22. Where did we go? Quite simply, we've been beamed up. And beam us up, Scotty. Clue number two. Now recall John's description in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 4 and pay attention to what he sees, hears, and experiences. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. So the first thing he sees is a door standing open in heaven. John, with his feet on the ground, is peering into the courts of heaven. Well, what does that signify? At least this, that God has opened the door of heaven, at least for a time. The door is standing open. And it's significant, I think, that that the one who issues the summons to John, um, come up here, is also the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So what John hears is the first voice, the voice of the glorified Jesus Christ. And he recalls from the vision of chapter 1 that that voice of Jesus was like a trumpet. Like a trumpet. What did we read in Paul's two descriptions of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians? The sound of a trumpet. And not just any trumpet, but the language that John uses indicates the very loud, piercing sound of a kind of trumpet that was used to declare war or to announce victory. That voice like a trumpet gives the command, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So John was commanded by the Lord Jesus not merely to look into heaven, but to enter heaven itself. Make note of that. John is not the first biblical prophet to have the privilege of standing on earth and and peering, looking into heaven. Um, The Old Testament prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel also had that privilege. But John is the only one actually summoned into heaven. No prophet in all of Scripture was ever allowed to enter heaven to report what he saw, except John. Most Bible scholars believe uh, the Apostle Paul was describing himself when he wrote to the Corinthians in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Let me just pause there for a moment. In, in Hebrew thought, there were three heavens. The first heaven was the atmosphere of earth. Second heaven was outer space, essentially, what we think of as outer space. And the third heaven was what we classically think of as heaven, the where God dwells. So Paul writes, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So this man, whether it's Paul or someone else he's describing, had some kind of ecstatic spiritual experience where he was transported into heaven and he heard things, it says, that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So he heard, perhaps saw, but he couldn't report. John uniquely is invited into heaven, into the courtroom of heaven, and is given free reign, given command to report, to write what he had seen. The third clue is this, the promise, I will show you what must take place after this, echoes chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus isn't telling anymore. Now he's showing John the events that are to come. John says, at once I was in the Spirit. Notice that. At once I was in the Spirit. And it's reminiscent of Paul's expression in 1 Corinthians 15, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. 
And the scene shifts suddenly and abruptly from earth to heaven. And it remains there. This is not a short-term visit for John. It remains there. The intervening chapters then are written from the vantage point of heaven, not earth. And their focus is on wrath and judgment being poured out on the earth. The late pastor and Bible teacher Ray Stedman wrote, John the Apostle, as he is summoned into heaven, represents the church which will be called out of the world and into heaven at the end of the age in which we now live. What John sees during the rest of Revelation is what the church will see from its heavenly vantage point after it is caught away to be with Christ. And here's the fourth clue. The scriptures, there there are scriptures, many, that indicate that God does not intend his church to experience his wrath. And here are three that are unmistakably clear. Revelation 3.10 Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Romans 5.9 Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So those are four clues. I said that I would return to Jesus' promise in John 14. Let me read that again for us. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Something that's important for us to understand in our interpretation of of those verses is that they are spoken in terms that parallel the Jewish marriage customs of the day. Follow this with me. You remember that uh, Mary and Joseph, we'll use them as our, our example of a Jewish couple, were betrothed, right? You remember that? And, and betrothal in, in Jewish custom was like our engagement, except for this, that the couple were known as husband and wife from the very beginning of that betrothal. Uh, Betrothal was so binding that that it could only be broken by official divorce, quite different than our our engagement. But here's what would happen in a betrothal. The the groom would leave his father's house. Uh, He would travel to the home of his intended. Uh, There he would pay a great price, known as the mohar, pay a great price to the Father or the bride's father. It was the, the bride price that he would pay. And then that offer, that proposal was either accepted or rejected, not by the bride, but by the father of the bride. The marriage covenant um, then was formalized. The betrothal was formalized. The, the covenant ratified. And then the groom would return to his father's house to prepare a place for him and his bride to live. Now compare that to the first coming of Jesus. Jesus left his father's house in heaven. Uh, He came to earth, traveled to the bride's home, came to earth as a baby. Uh, He paid a great bride price as he died on the cross for our sins. Um, And as we accept him, as we receive him, God offers us salvation. Believing and accepting, we become the bride of Christ. 
And then Jesus went to heaven to prepare a place for us. What about the wedding itself? When everything is ready, the home is prepared, the father sends his son back to retrieve his bride. It was the father's decision in Hebrew tradition. The father's decision when things were ready, when the son could go and retrieve his bride. And when he does, his groomsmen announce his arrival. Sometimes they blew a horn. Sometimes they just made a lot of noise as they were coming into the village. Uh, The groom is coming. Get ready. And then the bride would return immediately with the groom to the home that he had prepared for her. Arriving there, they would enter what was known as the wedding chamber for seven days. Seven days. Um, No one would see them for seven days. We would call it a honeymoon today. But then there was a great wedding feast at the end of that seven days. It was a great celebration. Compare that to the rapture of the church. Scriptures tell us that only God knows the day and the hour that he will send the son. It's the father's decision when Jesus will come. And when he comes, his arrival will be announced by the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the church will be caught up, will be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. And we will return then with him to the place he has prepared for us. Revelation and and other scriptures, the book of Daniel included, tell us that we will be in heaven for seven years while during which there will be great tribulation on the earth. And then at the end of those seven years will be the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Striking, isn't it? I want to say this before we move on into the remainder of of chapter four. The position that I've described and kind of staked out, the position that I hold is is known as a pre-tribulation rapture position. Um, I haven't yet developed the teaching on the tribulation. We'll see that in subsequent weeks. Most of the book of Revelation deals, in fact, from the vantage point of heaven with those seven years of tribulation on the earth will be unlike any other period in history uh, of the, the, the history of the world for human suffering, for the unleashing of pure evil in the world, uh, the expression of God's wrath toward the sinfulness of man. And, and I just want to acknowledge that there are believers, sincere believers who don't hold the same position that I uh, I hold and which I will be teaching you. I love and I respect those people. Um, there are some in our church who don't hold to this position. That's fine. Um, but whatever position you take, you've got to be able to answer the question of when the rapture, which has been promised, is going to occur on the prophetic calendar. And, and be able to defend that position. And for me, uh, the weight of evidence is persuasive for the rapture of the church before the beginning of that seven-year period the Bible describes as the Great Tribulation, or the Old Testament calls the time of Jacob's trouble. I also believe that each of us needs to hold our views, uh, not with stubborn arrogance, but with a generous measure of humility and love toward one another. See, whether we're right or wrong uh, in our our interpretations of the Bible's teaching on end times events, uh, if we've trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, uh, we can be confident that he's going to come and take us home to be his bride at the time that the Father chooses. And on that day, I think we're all going to be, well, we're all going to have enough surprises to go around. Well, let's return to Revelation 4 and the courts of heaven. And let's quickly review. What did John see in verse 1? A door, right? Standing open in heaven. What did he hear? 
The voice of the Lord Jesus saying, come up here, sounding like a trumpet. I'll show you what must take place after this. And what did he see next? A throne. Okay, we're right up to speed. Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. We saw that expression, I was in the spirit back in chapter 1. And we're going to see it again a couple of times. 17.3, chapter 17, verse 3, and chapter 21, verse 10. What does it mean? What does that mean, I was in the spirit? It seems to indicate that he was primed and prepared to prophesy. Uh, that's my little phrase that captures it. Primed and prepared to prophesy. It's not a, it's not a state that he self-generated. Um, rather, it's a condition that's created by the Spirit of God that enables a person to receive a special word from God intended to be relayed and communicated to God's people. So John is primed. He's prepared to prophesy as he has entered in the Spirit into the courts of heaven. And there he sees a throne standing with one seated on the throne. That word throne appears in chapter 4 14 times in 11 verses. In the entire book of Revelation, the word throne appears 46 times. And of the 22 chapters in Revelation, there are only five in which that word does not appear. The throne is a big deal in Revelation. Together, those instances tell us that no matter what may happen on earth, no matter how much chaos is going on on the earth, God is still on the throne. He is in sovereign control of all things. And John is drawn from the beginning of his vision to the glory and the wonder and the sovereign authority of God, the creator and the ruler. You might say that John's vision in chapter 4 is throne-centric. I don't think that's actually a word. I just created it. Notice with me 11 propositions, uh, propositions, prepositions that together illustrate that throne-centric reality. In verse 2, on the throne. Verse 3, around the throne. Verse 4, around the throne. Verse 5, from the throne and before the throne. Verse 6, before the throne, around the throne, and on each side of the throne. Verse 9, on the throne. Verse 10, on the throne and before the throne. Everything centers in Revelation 4 on the throne and around the throne. The one seated on the throne is God the Father. How do we know? How do we know it's not God the Son, Jesus Christ? Because in chapter 5, the very next chapter, which we'll see next week, we will see the Lord Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, brought before the one who is seated on the throne. I think words failed John to provide us with a detailed description of God as he sat on the throne. So he describes him instead in terms of colors, in terms of precious stones. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Uh, this particular Jasper, uh, the language that John uses and, and uses elsewhere in Revelation, indicates a kind of jasper that's crystal clear. So you might think of, instead of a diamond, had the appearance of diamond, and then the other one is carnelian. Uh, sometimes carnelian is substituted for rubies, so there's that deep red color. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. We sang earlier, clothed in rainbows of living color. Uh, the rainbow, uh, you know, despite its present usage in many places, belongs to God. He's the one that created it. And in heaven, in the courtroom, if you will, of heaven, again, that's a term that's never used in, in Revelation courtroom. We use it because it helps us understand in the courtroom of heaven, the Lord God, the creator, God the Father, is surrounded by a rainbow that appeared to John to look like emerald. Charles Swindoll commented on verse 3, it's worth noting that in his description, John didn't attempt to depict God precisely. Instead, we're given a glimpse of his glory, which is already enough to overwhelm us. John used the word homoios, meaning like or similar to, 
in verse 3 to put in an indescribable vision into accurate yet inadequate words. I said earlier that uh, John uses the word like in Revelation more than more often than a valley girl. <laughs> but that but that's the best he could do, right? Because he's seeing things that are so overwhelming, so foreign, uh, so new, so startling that he can only use language that fits uh, with what he already knows. Verse 4 introduces us to these figures he identified as 24 elders. Who are those guys? Those guys around the throne, uh, says in verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. We haven't heard of them before in the Bible. Notice that there are 24 of them. Uh, that's a multiple of 12. 12 is a number that's often associated in Scripture uh, with government. You might think of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Uh, these 24 elders are seated on 24 thrones that surround the throne of God. They're clothed in white garments. Uh, that's reminiscent of the words of Jesus to the church in Sardis in the previous chapter, chapter 3. Uh, where Jesus says to John, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So the white garments are a picture of having been redeemed, having sins forgiven, having been cleansed of all sin, uh, being having been made holy uh, by the Lord himself. They're wearing golden crowns. The word here is not diadem, which is, would be a royal crown, but rather it's Stephanos, uh, which is a victor's crown. It's, it's the first century uh, version of the Olympic gold medal. It's what victors in the Olympic games, the winners of those games uh, in the first century would have been given uh, as their reward, a, a golden crown of laurel leaves that would rest on their heads. And so this idea is associated with victors, with overcomers. And it recalls the words of Jesus to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Crown of life. They're also worshipers. Um, notice verse 9. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But they're worshipers. Some think of them as a, a special class of angels, perhaps, that are designated for special service in the kingdom of God. Uh, others, I included, think of them as perhaps representing all of the redeemed, Jews and Gentiles, from both the Old Testament and the New Testament periods. I think, I personally think that's probably who they are. But at the same time, we have to say in humility, we don't know. John doesn't tell us who they are. So though they're going to be our travel companions seemingly throughout the book, uh, he must not have felt we needed to know. He doesn't explain them. But they are interesting characters. The first part of verse 5, we read, From the throne, the throne of God, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And you may recall from your study of God's word that, that in the Bible, the symbols of lightning and, and rumblings and thunder are associated with the throne of God and they accompany occasions of God's judgment. For example, prior to that moment when Moses climbed Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord in Exodus 19, um, we read there that there were flashes of lightning, that there were rumblings and peals of thunder. It was a fearsome scene there before the mountain. The latter part of verse 5, we read this, Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Um, that can be confusing to us because we say, well, isn't there just one spirit of God? Isn't there one just, just one Holy Spirit? Um, but those seven spirits are representative of the one. We saw this previously in chapter 1, verse 4, where John wrote, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's Revelation 1.4. In scripture, that number seven 
is associated with completeness of perfection. It's sometimes referred to as the number of perfection. Um, The Apostle Paul, especially in Ephesians 5, taught about the fullness of the Spirit. And and maybe that's a, a good phrase to apply here, that the seven spirits of God represent the fullness of his presence in the courts of heaven. The picture of completion, of perfection, of fullness. In verse 6a, it says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And I'm going to admit to you here, I have no clue what that sea of glass is. Uh, I read pretty widely when I prepare these messages. I didn't find anybody that wanted to say, this is what it is. Nobody. Even my favorite commentators chickened out in, in taking a stand on what this is. Here's what I think may be a clue. In the Old Testament tabernacle and later in the temple, there was a, a golden laver, a, a fountain, if you will, a, um, where the priests would wash themselves before they began their work. For example, the high priest on the on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when he would be going into the Holy of Holies, would, would cleanse himself there at the laver. Um, and that may be represented here by this crystal sea of glass. If it is, then it would be a symbol of, of complete cleansing from, from every sin, every impurity, and the holiness of God's presence. Well, in the latter part of verse 6, then, we're introduced to another set of heavenly beings identified as the four living creatures. Who are those guys? And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now these guys are a little bit easier to identify, though they're not at all easy to understand, right? Notice, first of all, their number and their location. There are four of them. Uh, They are around the throne. It says they are on each side of the throne. Uh, They are the closest beings in proximity to God in the court of heaven as he is seated on his throne. Um, I don't have time to read these passages, but if you're taking notes, just write these down. Ezekiel 1, 4 through 14. Ezekiel 1, 4 through 14. And Isaiah chapter 6, 1 to 3. Ezekiel 1, 4 to 14. Isaiah 6, 1 to 3. In each of those passages, uh, the, re- the prophets respectively give very similar descriptions of angelic beings in their own visions of heaven. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, calls them seraphim, which would be a a special class of angels. Notice this, though, and I think this is the most distinctive thing about them. They never stop worshiping. They never stop worshiping. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, it is, and is to come. They're 24-7 worshipers. They're observing, they're contemplating, they're declaring the utter holiness of God. They're declaring his eternal nature. If the 24 elders are, are worshipers, then the four living creatures, I would say, are the worship leaders in the very throne room of heaven. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, there's the leadership. Here's the followership. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Now, before I wrap up, notice the manner with me of their worship, the the manner of their worship. They fall down 
before the Lord who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever. In order to do that, they need to leave their own thrones, right? They're seated on 24 thrones around the throne. They leave their thrones. They're dethroned, if you will. They prostrate themselves before the Lord. And then they cast their crowns before the throne. They had been rewarded those crowns for their faithfulness. But as they contemplate the worthiness of the Lord, those crowns suddenly seem inappropriate to them. Why? Because they realize that even their own faithfulness to him has been made possible only by his faithfulness to them. They have been faithful because he has been faithful. They have nothing which they were not given. Uh, They accomplished only what he intended and what he enabled in and through their lives. And so as a result, their crowns were not really their own. And so they apparently feel compelled to return them to him. And next, notice the content of their worship. They declare God's worthiness to be worshipped, to receive glory and honor and power on this basis. We'll see another basis in chapter 5. But here in chapter 4, they worship him on the basis that he is the creator of all things, that they came into being for one reason and one reason only, and that is because he willed it so. Another translation might say, for your pleasure, for your pleasure. You willed it so. All of creation exists by his will and for his pleasure. Paul wrote in in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. See, before God can truly be known as redeemer, as savior, he first must be acknowledged as the creator. I don't want you to miss the sharp contrast here with the attitude of an increasing number of people who claim the name of Christ and yet consider the biblical doctrine of creation to be suspect or of only minor importance. From Genesis to Revelation, God is presented as creator. It's unmistakable. It's unavoidable. Neither men nor angels can create anything. Nor can random matter create or organize itself. Only God can create and has created. So I would just suggest to you, the Bible is either true or it isn't. We can't pick and choose what we're going to accept and believe. The Bible doesn't give us that option. Again, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible declares the glory of God as the creator and the sustainer of everything and everyone that exists and therefore his complete and utter worthiness of all of our worship. The late A.W. Tozer said that genuine worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. Let me ask you this morning, are you, are you a worshiper? Are you a worshiper? There, there are many in the 21st century who, who don't actually have a clue what real worship really is. Uh, we tend to be obsessed with all kinds of peripheral matters. Um, things that really focus on ourselves instead of God. Uh, so we need a new vision in the church today of of the unique and utter worthiness of God that compels us to turn all of our affection, all of our attention, all of our adoration toward him. 
By definition, simply put, worship is ascribing worth to something or someone so that we attribute value, we we give honor, we give devotion to whatever it is we worship. So that when we truly worship God, you and I are going to turn all of our attention, all of our affection, all of our adoration toward him. We're going to be as we're obsessed with him. And that's the missing jewel that Tozer was writing about, uh, of, of worshiping God by acting as if he is of supreme worth because he is. He alone is worthy. See, the grand theme of the book of Revelation is worship. And some of us think of Revelation, we think, oh, it's all about prophecy. No, it's, it's all about worship because it's all about the throne at the center. And so the question of worship is who's sitting on the throne, God or you? At the center of our growth as worshipers is a growing knowledge and awareness of who God is and all that he has done and therefore who we are in relationship to him. And to do that, I don't know of any other uh, way, uh, any other avenue except to devote large amounts of time to reading and reflecting on God's word and then responding to what we discover in wonder, in humility, and in praise. Some of you, you know, Wonder why, why would we do a, a, a worship night on a Friday night separate from Sunday morning? It's about overflow. It's about the heart that desires to worship the Lord. And I would just suggest if, if an hour of worship seems painful to you, you're going to hate heaven. <laughs> you are not going to enjoy heaven because it's all about worship 24-7. I don't understand all of that, but I accept a bit accept it to be true. Those of you who are who took the challenge to read through the Bible in a year or in however long it takes, uh, you are the ones who have the greatest head start in becoming worshipers. I have a lot more I'd like to say this morning, um, but we'll leave it there. We'll resume next week in chapter five. Uh, I hope that in your life groups this week uh, or in conversations you have with other believers, uh, you'll consider together maybe what it means, what it requires, what it looks like to to grow as worshipers of the eternal creator God who is seated on the throne of heaven. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the great hope that we have that you're coming again. Lord, we look forward to that day. May we stand in grace and grace alone, knowing that our our best efforts fall short of the glory of God. But it's your grace and the blood of Christ that bridges the gap. And so, Lord, may we be found in you, found faithful, found worshiping, and to continue that right on into heaven. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our soon coming King. Amen.